This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. Welcome to the Invested Podcast, where we are learning to invest like Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger as best we can. And... You know, that covers a lot of territory, and we are having a ball doing it. We've been at this about, what, almost three years now? Yeah. Where I'm trying to teach my daughter to invest, and now she's teaching me, and we just keep going on and now on. We just, now we just uh, have opinions, and we fight. And it's <laughs> <laughs> but not today. Not today. <laughs> so today we're so lucky because as we've been telling you guys now for six weeks... I hope you went out and bought the Rebel Allocator because we have the author here with us today, Jacob Taylor. Jacob L. Taylor is the CEO of Farnham Street Investments. He's the host of the author interview series, Five Good Questions, which is excellent. You're reading you that. Should all. You're reading that. Yeah, I'm reading his I can bio. tell you're reading it. Yeah. <laughs> Deal He's with here. it. He's here. He's <laughs> here. He's the... Just let me finish. <laughs> okay, He's the ahead. creator of the world's worst hike... Oh, not worst. Creator of the world's first hike cast. It could be both. I don't know Jake, what that is. Jacob, Jake, what's a creator Jacob, of the world's worst before hike I finish cast. your bio, welcome. And what is a hike cast? Well, thanks for having me. Um, <coughs> the hike cast was just an idea that I had that um, I noticed when I'd go on a hike with a friend, we would have these amazing conversations out in nature. And it felt like it things just flowed when you were outside uh, much easier than maybe with a microphone in front of you. So I, um, I thought, well, shoot, why don't I figure out how to record some of these uh, and then I can put them out there. And, and it really, it's just a way for an excuse for me to get outside more and, and uh, you know, take long walks. So that's, that's really all it's really about. I love that idea. I always think the best things in life come from, well, it really, it was just an excuse for me to do X, Y, and Z. It's like- It's pretty yeah. much all of my projects uh, are yeah. things that I just kind of wanted to do anyway. <laughs> All right, I'm going to finish talking about your projects. You used to be an adjunct professor at UC Davis Graduate School of Management, and The Rebel Allocator is Jake's first literary effort. He lives in Folsom, California with his wife and two boys, where he enjoys being the second best-selling author in the house. Okay, you got to explain that one. Oh, well, my wife is... um... She's written several cookbooks, actually, that are pretty well-received, um, mostly that's in the, awesome. actually like the, the keto diet space. Um, so, yeah, that's, um, as a, add a bonus, I get to test a lot of the recipes. So we, we eat pretty well around here. <laughs> so you oh, guys so many know. ways we can go with that one. We just watched a documentary last night from this Australian guy called Fat, Sick, and... Mostly and, Dead? And most, and or, yeah, something Or Nearly like Dead? Yeah, Fat's Nearly Dead. It was incredible. Is your wife like writing cookbooks to that audience that wants to get healthy food? Yeah, I don't know that specific um, take on it, but um, you know, this the keto diet ends up being very, very low carb, um, and and the style that they that she uh, offers is is really more 
kind of natural real foods like you're eating basically a lot of meat and vegetables that's that's what it boils down to um and and not being afraid to eat a fair amount of fat from good sources nice i love that i mean that's what i want to eat i want to eat like that we uh, we call it paleo down here in the same vein of getting healthy watch this segue in the same vein as getting healthy i'm not okay we want to have healthy investments and has that written was awesome. a book. Yeah, thanks. That yeah. <laughs> serves up the nasty, it serves up the vegetables, the stuff that doesn't taste quite as good, wrapped in a beautiful chocolate cake. Jake, how did you come up with the idea to write the rebel what? investor in the what form of that? a fiction novel? Wait, wait, Jake, don't even answer. I'm still back with the vegetables wrapped up in the chocolate cake metaphor. That sounds terrible. You're going to ruin the vegetables and you're going to ruin the chocolate cake. Yes. What can I tell you? I mean, people bake zucchini into brownies and it tastes really good. Fine. Zucchini uh, and brownies. There is uh, carrot cake also. That's pretty yes. good. Yes. Well, there is there is that. Yeah. Okay. Never mind. I stand corrected. So, sorry, Jake. Onward. Yeah. So, the the premise of why did I write this book? <laughs> as, as Let me restate the question. <laughs> Yeah, so this book is it's a it's fiction, it's in the form of a novel and in the novel the main character learns a ton um from kind of a Yoda style figure about how to allocate capital in businesses. So why did why instead of just writing like a straightforward like business book, here's how you do it, why did you decide to put it in the form of a story? Yeah, I I started as you would expect going down that nonfiction traditional path. And I had, you know, I had put together a pretty good book proposal um, and, and even entertained a few book offers for it. Uh, but at some point I just, I felt like that I just couldn't write that book, that it would just be too dry and too boring and too easily forgotten in six months. Um, and I felt like there were all these little nudges from the universe that were telling me, you have to tell a story. There has to be some emotion if you really want the lessons to stick. Um, and so I basically threw all that in the garbage can and started over and started researching uh, how to tell a good story. And it got to me thinking one day, like, all right, who's a good storyteller? And I thought, well, I mean, Hollywood basically does that for a living. Um, so I started researching and reading books about writing screenplays uh, just to, so I could have some kind of a, a framework of how do I overlay these lessons that I want to teach but keep it within the arc of a character you know, and, and a, a story developing. Um, and it turns out that that screenplays are very tight, like emotional. They call it like basically like a, a Swiss clock of emotion. Like there, there's little pieces that have to be at each little place. Otherwise, the whole thing doesn't work. Um, so I stole all of that stuff basically for my book. Um, and basically the book reads as sort of the karate kid um, as it. But if Mr. Miyagi was a Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger character, um, how would that play out? Um, so that was... That was really the impetus of, of how I, I transitioned from, you know, kind of boring nonfiction that you would probably expect for this topic to something a little bit different. Um, and hopefully actually makes it, a, like you said, the vegetables go down a little bit easier with the story of the, the chocolate cake. You know, I don't often think about um, capital allocation when I think of Warren and Charlie and investing strategies and so on. How do you tie that together? I mean, I know that, it, that, that Buffett, considers that many CEOs are not good capital allocators and that, and that capital allocation is the number one job of a CEO. 
And but you don't before think, you don't get think... into that one, can you also define capital allocation? Oh, there we go. Good, good thing to, to do. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I define it personally as, as very simplistically that what does the business spend its money on? Whether it's paper clips all the way up to share buybacks. Um, and at different levels of the organization, are, are, people are still doing capital allocation. Um, you know, just deciding what you spend your budget on is capital allocation. Even if you're, you know, the lonely like line manager down at the bottom, um, if you have any kind of a, a P&L. So. Oh, that's super interesting. That's really easy to relate to. Yeah. Any budget, any allocation within that budget, that's capital allocation. Yeah. And I mean, it, the term kind of gets confused with, uh, because it also means if you're a, let's say you're like a hedge fund manager, you're making capital allocation decisions within your fund also. Like, so we, the whole, the term capital itself actually is a pretty sloppy term. Actually, we, we use it for, to describe many, many different situations and things in the world, uh, using this one same word. And I, it's actually kind of frustrating to me that we don't have more words to describe these different situations. Um, so in the book, I, I actually invented a term, uh, and it, it's called fapital. And that's basically the combination of the words financial and capital together. Um, and unfortunately, I found out after I'd already written the book that um, apparently fapping is uh, something that you would do by yourself that maybe uh, would be embarrassing. <laughs> and I think it's a British term. So I have fapital as, oh, as no. uh, this thing that no. <laughs> I found out later that might have maybe wasn't the best word choice. But <laughs> Well, man. If 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 I'm as an investor, I'm obviously interested in allocating my capital. But aside from that, if I were to use, you know, the the skill set of a CEO to allocate capital as a pretty good marker, it would be a pretty good marker, right? Of of the potential for that company to grow. How would I go about doing that? How do I figure out that this guy's a good capital allocator? You know what I do uh, for myself when I'm evaluating capital allocation is I. I will look at the financial statements mostly, and honestly, mostly the cash flow statement tells me uh, the majority of the story. Uh, and I will put myself in that that uh, CEO or you know that management shoes and look at different time periods. And I'll look and see like what did they do? What were they spending their money on at that time period? Like what did it look like? So if, like let's say share buybacks, how expensive was their stock at that time when they were doing share buybacks or, you know, what did the, I try to put myself and be empathetic with what were they looking at and what decision would I have made if I was in their shoes and how does that, how does that vary? Um, and, and also how clear do they explain, you know, what, what their thought process was um, in their letters and um, the things that they talk about um, publicly. So it's really a kind of a game of empathy of, because it's such a wide ranging topic that, you know, like, what do you spend your money on in a business? Like it could be so many different things and, and so many different things might may or may not be a good idea. It's very difficult to just put it into a kind of a cookie cutter, you know, quantitative, like, you know, X, Y, Z, they should have been doing this or that. Uh, but if I put myself in their shoes and try to imagine what I would be spending money on, if it, what they're doing makes sense to me, then I feel like, okay, these guys at least are following a logical framework. And also, are they thinking for themselves about it? I mean, that's one of the biggest highlights of, of William Thorndike's book, The Outsiders, uh, which is a pretty, pretty great uh, collection of different fantastic capital allocators. Um, it really describes 
what it looks like uh, to have a, a really good capital allocator. The, all of them share this, this one feature in particular that they're, they're all iconoclastic. They're all, they all think for themselves. They're all, you know, avoiding the herd. And so it's kind of interesting because you have the exact same phenomena of being a good investor in a, you know, as a, in the public markets in your, your IRA or whatever it is of not wanting to follow the herd the same thing is true at the corporate level of the CEOs who do a really good job of capital allocation. Um, so if the, the biggest takeaway that you could have for any of this is that just thinking for yourself is, is your, your biggest advantage. So why, why is not following the herd a, a good idea given, given that many people when they think of investing are essentially the herd themselves. They're just the herd. Right, jump into an index, jump into broad market mutual funds. But if you're actually investing, why is not? You would think, well, okay, the the herd's going to take the market up. Let's just follow the herd. Why is that a bad idea? Uh, well, I mean, it depends on <clears throat> it depends on what your what does it look like when when you're doing it. So, like for instance, um, let's say that you're you're an index fund buyer. If you're buying the index fund in 2009, I have no complaints at all. I think that was a really smart move. Yeah. If you're late to the party and you're buying index fund hand over fist right now, 10 years on uh, into a bull market, well, maybe you're a little bit late to the party and typically that's not going to work out so well for you. Um, and the price that you're paying to own these 500 businesses, let's say on an S&P 500 index, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you're, you're paying up for a pretty rosy future. There's been a lot of extrapolation from here upward and people drawing straight diagonal lines up into the right. Uh, and that's just not how the world really works. Like there's cycles to everything. So, you know, it all, like in the answer to anything, it really depends. Um, and a lot of it has to do with the price that you're paying. So it depends on if you're at the front of the herd or the back of the herd. Well, I think the saying is that what the wise do in the beginning, the fool does in the end, right? Yeah. So if, yeah. if everybody's piled in early or, or in front of you and you're the last one to the party, you're, you may be the one holding the bag. Yeah. So um, when we're looking at doing this on our own, um, staying away from the herd basically is, is there some, is there some structure to that? I mean, do you, do you think in terms of, of um, some specifics with regard to companies that take you away from the herd automatically or no? Uh, or, or do you just look at contrarian stocks? Hey, the herd's going that way, everything they're not buying I'm interested in. Yeah. I mean, typically for me, the, the herd comes down to valuation um, and how expensive is what I'm buying right now? Does that tell me how popular is this or not? Um, and so you know, there's, there's reversion to the mean if you still believe that that is a thing that exists. <laughs> Which, you know, we have 10 years of, of strong evidence that, that reversion to the mean is dead for the time being. Um, but if you do believe in that uh, as a strategy, then naturally going where other people aren't is, will show up in the prices of things um, and things will be cheaper um, and, and the expensive things will, will come back down to earth as well. Um, and so as a, as a value oriented investor, as a fundamental investor, you're, I think you're really just looking for those situations where either something is too cheap uh, or too expensive. Um, and you try to avoid the expensive and buy the cheap. 
Well, this seems to imply that you might think that sort of efficient market theory is perhaps not that solid. What do you think? Uh, I agree. I actually think that the, I think the market is relatively efficient, um, but I also think that it's not completely efficient. And those two things are, are hugely important, uh, believing one versus the other. Uh, if you believe that the market is completely efficient, then you should probably be operating in a completely different way than, you know, trying to find, you know, cheap individual companies to be buying. However, if you think that there's any chance that there's inefficiency, then it does behoove you to then be on the lookout for buying things that are on sale. So I think it's, it's generally the market's pretty damn efficient um, and, and even more efficient now than it was, you know, 20, 30, 50 years ago when a lot of our heroes were starting out. Um, I think there's an interesting stat that uh, is, is a little bit troubling as a, as a, as a money manager. And it's, the number of stocks divided by the number of CFA holders. <laughs> it's, it's kind of a measurement of efficiency in a way, like how many eyeballs, like smart, quote unquote, smart CFA eyeballs are looking at the number of stocks. And so how efficient would the market be because of that? Um, and that number, because stocks have act, the number of stocks public have, has trended down, the number of CFAs has trended up. That ratio has gotten, gotten a little tough for the, the individual, individual investor that wants to to make uh you know above market returns cfa is certified financial advisor uh, uh i think certified financial analyst but mm. yeah so essentially a professional essentially a professional yeah it's a pretty Got rigorous it. program to get your cfa designation um but it's also a it's kind of ironic because it's also teaches i think mostly efficient markets and you know efficient frontier um you know correlations, things like that, that, that are a little bit more academic, but, but it does give you an idea like, wow, there's a lot of eyeballs looking at these things, trying to figure out what they're worth. Something my dad and I have debated a lot regarding efficient markets and, and, and inefficient markets is the time frame in which one qualifies the efficiency. Because for a very short-term investor, one could argue the market is pretty efficient. They get the information so quickly these days. It works out pretty well. If you're looking at the long term, though, when you build in outside forces and emotions and, and multiple things going on in markets, they do look much more inefficient than they do from a short term perspective. What do you think? I agree completely. I think that there's a lot of, uh, you know, quarterly, uh, there's a lot of focus on what happens quarter to quarter with a company uh, and mm -hmm. less on what does the company look like five, 10, 20 years from now. Um, and so that, that may be that patience may be one of the only lasting edges that that's out there now. Um, there's so much, there's so much data. Uh, there, there's so much uh, information, um, you know, whether it's satellite feeds of parking lots to try to tell you what retail numbers are going to look like. I mean, to try to win on having a better data set is incredibly difficult and incredibly expensive nowadays. But if you're focused on what do things look like three years from now compared to what does it look like three minutes from now, uh, I think that you, you still, there's still an edge there to be had for the, for the average investor. There's a, there's another view of this that, that Danielle um, proposed, I don't know, a year or two ago when we were talking, I was basically maintaining that, um, 
that f- we would want to buy when there's fear in the market and, uh, and sell. Yeah. Buy fear, sell greed. Right. <laughs> Which we haven't seen any fear for a long time, but yeah, the, the basic general approach would be that way. And, and since uh, you know, the vast majority of money that's in the market is managed money, it would require theoretically that very experienced rational investors get fearful and in that get irrational and make a mistake on in terms of their valuation. And Danielle argued back, and I'd love to ha- have you weigh in on this, argued back that probably the incentive for a fund manager is, is to keep up with his peer group or her peer group or her index. And to not do so is to take your life in your hands. Um, and to not do so for over a year would be a tantamount to suicide. And therefore the, the incentives for professional fund managers is, are not long-term great results. They're short-term keeping up with the mob. Um, and there's a lot of cautionary tales out there about people who thought they would go long-term and, and, and were right and still lost their jobs. And so what, and so that's where the efficient inefficiency comes is that, as you were just saying in that short-term versus long-term, but that it isn't driven by fear. It's driven by needs of the job, which I thought was a really interesting insight. What do you think? Yeah, I think there's definitely some, some principal agent uh, problems there of <clears throat> intermediaries that are optimizing and being completely rational from their point of view of I need to survive to the next round of this job. And it may or may not have anything to do with being able to provide the best investment results for my, my client. Um, I think you see that quite a bit. Uh, I mean, you see it when, when everyone piles into the same names um, that are hot. Um, you know, it's just, there's a lot of reflexivity to that too, where it, that, it, that, that momentum shows up and now everyone wants to get in on it. No one wants to miss the boat and that self that feeds on itself. Um, and you get some weird behavior in markets because of that. Um, and that's, you know, I think that's where the rational longer term thinking uh, investor has an advantage that you don't have to play that game. You don't have to participate in that kind of folly. Um, and even though it's difficult, especially if you're are marking yourself against any kind of a benchmark, um, and have other people's money to, to report to, that can be very difficult. Um, but yes, that's, that's where you really have to educate your investors. If you're a professional manager, you have to, um, make sure that you guys have the same timelines. Everyone's on the same page as far as, all right, what are we trying to do here? Like, what's our, what's our strategy? They really have to know to believe long enough. Um, and you know, you see studies like, I think the best performing mutual fund um, in the 2000s was this uh, as Ken Hebner's fund. It was like the CMG or CBG or something like that. And it, I mean, it crushed it. it I think I, I might have the numbers a little bit wrong, but like it was a plus, uh, I think like 17% annualized over that wow. period. And that, that 10 year period was basically like a zero for, for the markets roughly <laughs> um, depending on when you start your measurement. Well, what did the average investor do in that fund? It was like negative 10%. That was the dollar weighted return. And so you had this rocket ship that did 17%, but no one was on the ride when it was going up. They all piled in at the end when it was going down uh, or after, you know, and then it went down. Oh no my gosh. way. 
Yeah. And I think that this happens a lot, actually. Like, um, it's kind of a sad statement of the, la the lack of integration between a fund manager and their clients that they, the dollar weighted returns for, I think, a lot of investors uh, or for a lot of money managers are, are, are not that encouraging because of that. Like they have a great streak and then all the hot money pours in and then, you know, they get, things cool off. Like your, your style goes out of favor and then, then everyone flees when you're down. Uh, and it's just, it's kind of the same thing that happens in the market in general uh, where everyone piles in when things just keep going up. Cause it feels like the risk is off uh, is no longer there, but um, you know, that's, it's human nature really playing itself oh, it's, out it, over and over. And the industry keeps pushing that, that, that result, I think to a certain degree, Bruce Berkowitz, um, I think had three stocks in Fairholm in 2010, famously yeah. city bank of America and AIG. And, and they all went up a little bit in 2010 and then 2011 with the Greek bond problem, they all went down and the market went sideways. And I think out of the 18 billion he was managing, 11 billion came out almost immediately from these pension fund guys who are not going to sit there and wait while he, while while you're going through this horrible moment. And then of course the next year I think the, those stocks went up enormously and the year after that I think they went up 90%. I mean it's just huge jumps. He was 100% right. Yeah. But it doesn't matter. He becomes a cautionary tale and roadkill. Yeah. Can you imagine trying to manage the like just day-to-day -day operations of your business with with, you know, 15 million dollars of hot money or billion of flowing in and then flowing out the next year? Like what Ooh. a pain in the ass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and it and you think that's at the basis of this cautionary tale for fund managers is don't try to be a hero. Don't try to, you know, be a Warren Buffett and and knock out 26% a year compounded. I mean, you're just going to get roadkill. You're you're going to have a down you're going to have a down year when the market's up and you're done. When that happens. Yeah, and, much better to to fail conventionally, right? Than fail conventionally. Keep the assets under management. Take take home a nice check, and and don't sweat it. And that that seems to be the the majority of people in the industry have learned that lesson. Um, you have not learned that lesson yet. No, I'm just keep getting hit <laughs> over the head with uh, lessons I'm not learning. I guess. <laughs> but it but it real investors don't do it like that. Real investors do it like you do. That's real investing, in my view. You know. I mean, I'd like to think patience. that it's it's that it's a logical approach, um, but I'm sure everybody thinks that they're doing the right thing at, at every moment, right? I well, mean, I, it seems to me that things. your approach is unusual, and not just because you wrote a fiction book about a business topic, but you just said a little bit ago that when you look at those cash flow statements, you see it as a game of empathy. And you don't hear a lot of words like that around investing. Um, do you think that that's a real difference in the way that you invest and the way you think about investing? I mean, I don't think that I have any special insight there. I think I do recognize now more every day that, you know, these are people making decisions at every level. Like we like to abstract it out as this like company and, um, you know, these entities and businesses doing like in these uh, industries. But at the end of the day, there's a person making a decision all along the line at, totally. at every juncture here. And, and the other thing too, is that the thing that's really been driven home for me is that business is just messy because there's so many humans involved. 
any business you've ever been a part of has, there's mess. And that's just, that's just part of it. And, and so I understand that the business is messy more than I did even a few years ago. Um, and that therefore, if I put myself in their, their shoes and try to be empathetic and think about what they're, what they're going through, the decision uh, making process, the opportunity set that they have in front of them, and, and then try to imagine what I would do like that. It just makes sense to me as a way to evaluate them and, and um, really just like put kind of skin in the game. Like what would I do if, if I was in their situation? In your book, the main uh, sort of teacher guy um, constantly talks about personal life and about his experience growing up and, and you have him um, coming, he came from a family who started the burger joint or he started the burger joint. I can't remember. Yeah, his father did, yeah. Yeah, so there was a whole family component to it that he then felt he had to uphold and make it better, and he talks a lot to the main character about that. What made you put in... I mean, Buffett's the same. Buffett talks so much about personal stuff. What made you put that stuff into this book about business ideas? Uh, well, a, a large part of it, like for that specific character, um, I wanted it to be recognized that that he actually made a lot of sacrifices uh, to do what he thought was right. And he felt like that he could serve his fellow man best by being a great business person um, and, and all the different ways that, that that manifests itself, whether it's, you know, mentoring his employees to making good capital allocation decisions to uh, even just providing a, you know, a great food experience for, for customers. Like that's a really noble thing to be doing. Like he's feeding people. Um, mm -hmm. so I wanted it to be a little bit painful in him telling his story about how he ended up, uh, really sacrificing a lot of his personal relationships to, to be the best business person that he could. Um, and th that there was a real cost there and that, that he should be celebrated as someone that helped his fellow man more than, than average by the sacrifice that him and his family were, were willing to make. Um, and I think that, you know, I've never heard Buffett say that specifically about his own uh, life, but you can kind of draw the parallels there pretty easily if you've read any of his biographies of, you know, like he just, he worked all the time. His kids, you know, had, they had relationship with him, but, you know, it wasn't maybe the closest and tightest uh, family dynamic, it seemed like, at least from my understanding. Um, and I think that he thought he was doing the best thing he could for the world by doing what he did and being a, a great teacher for, for all of us. And uh, it's hard to say that like that the world's not a better place because of that decision that he made and that, and that sacrifice that probably his family made. Uh, so I, I wanted to bring that out a little bit for this, this Mr. X character um, in a way that maybe people would appreciate some of the sacrifice that business people make uh, to serve their fellow man in, in a capitalist way. Do you think it's possible that that's what Charlie picked up on that made him pick up the telephone? Charlie Munger picks up the telephone and calls you. Yeah, I don't know what exactly. I think <laughs> I, I mean, I, I sent him the book around the holidays and I think I just caught him at a weak moment. Maybe, uh, you know, he was <laughs> Charlie Munger with a weak moment. Right. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like, and the fact that there's just like enough story there to keep someone interested, uh, I think probably didn't hurt. Um, and, like who's sending him fictional books like that. And, and there's a fair number of things in the book also that, that um, would mimic Charlie's life as well. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not going to spoil them, but, but the, the, 
he's I know that he kind of told me that he saw a lot of himself in the character um, and that's great I mean that means that I, I I did what I was trying to do you know I accomplished what my aim was did he say that with pride or with a little bit of regret or what was his tone no I think um it, well I think what he actually said was that uh you know of course I was gonna like that it was it's basically about me <laughs> It wasn't maybe not quite that exact wording, but that was kind of the, the gist of what uh, what he told me at one point during our phone call. Were you it's as skeptical so about value investing as your main character when you first started learning about this stuff way back in business school? No, no, I was. Um, so the, this the, actually the the background for me was that I was I was running the power grid for the state of California before I got into investing um, and. It was a job that I got right out of college uh, and I basically like worked in the control room floor um, and was effectively an electrical engineer. Um, so I went back to go get my MBA just to keep my options open for if I wanted to go into management at the company. And it, they, that was when I happened to win this lottery to go back and visit Warren Buffett um, and do one of those student visits that he does. Um, and I, what was amazing to me was that I'd realized because after doing a little bit more research about his style that I had been a value investor my entire life. I had just loved to find a deal on something. It didn't matter what, like I never paid retail for anything in my life uh, if I could help it. Oh, so you really started to recognize it in yourself. It, it, like Buffett says, it's inoc it can be an inoculation for people. Like it takes right away or it doesn't make sense to some people. Um, and for me, it made sense right away. It was just like, of course, why wouldn't I want to buy partial ownership of businesses and get a deal on them? Like what, how, what, what other way is there though that would make any sense? <laughs> so no, for me, it was like right away made perfect sense. Um, with the character, I, I, wa I wanted, that was a little bit of a literary effect to give the character a longer arc of growth for him. Um, so I pulled that, that arrow back very far for him, you know, with having his parents be, uh, you know, very more socialist, like they're kind of anti-capitalist. Um, and, and he is as well. And so now he has a much further distance to grow and, and to, to recognize um, some of the merits of capitalism. So yeah, I did that. Um, that was, that was kind of a literary trick. It wasn't so much my, uh, my personal upbringing. So it's not completely autobiographical. No, no, no. There's lots of, <laughs> it took lots of literary license. I, I've I've got to bring us back to an earlier question before before I forget, which is, we sort of started into what what are some key, uh, I don't know, data points that we could look at if we're really looking for a great allocator of capital. And you said that um, you would look at at a company that's doing buybacks, compare their price, price to, what to what you thought, thought their value, value was at that time period. period. Uh, uh, the, the, the the idea being, being that, that they would be, be buying, buying back stock, stock underneath, underneath their, their value, value rather than above it. it. Uh, we'd be a good indication of capital allocation skill. Is, is, are, there are there others that, that, that are pretty, that, that, that we, we can dig up pretty, pretty easily? easily or what? Yeah, I mean, um, the, the number one thing that most businesses have as their best option is reinvestment in their own business. So that calculation can come from something as simple as return on invested capital. Um, and maybe even actually return on incremental invested capital is, is even better. But What is that? Um, it's more of a, a, a measurement of the change in invested capital and what the returns were over that time period. Um, so it's a little bit of a, it's a little bit more academic and a little tougher to calculate, but, but the general idea is that 
if I have a dollar that comes into my business, what's my best option for it? And most businesses, the answer is to put the money back into the same operations that you were doing, uh, you know, widening your moat, um, you know, delighting your customers, uh, and really trying. And, and typically it comes down to uh, a strategic cost versus a non-strategic cost. And so w- what I would define strategic cost is a dollar that goes towards making your customers happy versus a non-strategic is, you know, things like overhead and, you know, typically fall into the SGNA uh, line item on a, on a, on an income statement. So um, typically uh, the, the best use of capital is back into the business. And hopefully, you know, you have a really long runway of, of capital that can be deployed into that business and still produce high returns. There's a lot of businesses that aren't like that. Um, they, they just can't absorb any more capital and provide a good return from it. So knowing which kind of business you're in is important. Um, if you're like, let's take uh, Buffett, for instance, the a kind of a classic example would be sees candy produces incredible returns on invested capital, but can't absorb any new capital very readily. Now let's contrast that with BNSF, uh, the Burlington Northern Railroad that they own. That can absorb crazy amounts of capital, but only yields like, let's call it, you know, roughly 10% on a regulatory return. Um, so it's not putting up huge numbers, but it can, it can consume a lot of capital and still provide a return on it. So return on invested capital is always typically your number one, um, number one choice. Then from there, you know, you, you can get into more. Um, the other nice thing about return on invested capital is that hopefully that's the business that the CEO knows the best right? So they have the most insights on what is like, what makes sense to spend their money on. As you start getting into M&A or, uh, you know, outside of, out of that, you, you start to get a little bit fuzzier as far as what are things worth compared to what am I, what am I paying for it? Um, and now you have to have a CEO with even more insight, um, you know, globally compared to just like, I know how to run this business and I know mm-hmm. how to spend money in this business and get good returns on it. Um, mm-hmm. So, and then let's, you talked about buybacks. Um, I have a little bit of a different view on buybacks than I think um, a lot of people that I've, I've come across. I think that that buybacks are, should be thought of in a little bit more holistic sense. Um, you have the, the Henry Singleton uh, Teledyne style of buybacks that are, uh, he would buy back when things, when his stock was incredibly cheap. Now, as an investor, that is very accretive for you if you're one of the remaining shareholders. But if you had, if you were one of the selling shareholders, you actually kind of got robbed, um, and you, and the company kind of robbed you in a way. Uh, I think that that capitalism and and CEOs can do a better service for humanity if they try to keep their their price as close to the intrinsic value as possible of the company. So that incoming and outgoing shareholders, people who need liquidity or people that want to be investors are roughly treated the same. Um, and so when you have too big of a dislocation between price and intrinsic value that the CEO is taking advantage of, you know, that's, it's kind of great from a, a, an investor standpoint, like when they're buying back super cheap, but the people who were scared and were selling at that point, or they needed liquidity, and, and you don't know why your, your shareholders need liquidity. What if they have, a, like, they need a major surgery? Or what if they need, like, there's a, a really important, uh, you know, charity that they want to fund. Like, you have an obligation, I think, as a, a steward of capital to provide your, 
your shareholders with a, at least a reasonable exit price if that's what they want to do. Um, and so if you're chiseling them too hard when, when they're, everyone's afraid, you know, that, that, that to me is actually not being as good a steward of capital as you could be. So uh, I think I, I understand that at, at, at the private business level where there's no market and you're my partner and you want out and I've, the business has capital and we kind of arrive at something that we feel is, has integrity for both of us and we're good to go. Right. Yeah. But in the public markets, let's, as an example, let's say that, um, you know, Berkshire's at, uh, at roughly 200 right now. So Buffett seems to be buying it around 180 ish. And, um, and let's say there's a big, a big market drop in this and Berkshire does what it's done, uh, done on a regular basis, drop 50%. So now we got Berkshire at a hundred. Are you saying that Buffett would be acting improperly to, to take Berkshire capital and buy stock there? Uh, I, I wouldn't say it's improper, but I would say that anything that he could do to keep, um, the price and intrinsic value is close together will give his will give both incoming and outgoing and remaining shareholders the fairest shake on an entire like kind of holistic view so you think it maybe what he would it help if he said look this is so cheap um if it stays here we're going to be buying it something like that at least a heads up telegraph it yeah i think that that's an, a nice way to to at least let your partners know who, you know, when are they, when, if they're thinking about, um, if they're thinking about selling, at least they have some idea that, you know, who's going to be buying on the other end. And if it's the company, then, you know, you, you know, that you're, you know, maybe you're hopefully not getting taken advantage of too much. Jake, this has been fantastic. I'd, I'd love to spend another hour or two with you. Me too. <laughs> I mean, Jake, would, would you come so back on beneficial. the show? Can we do it again? Yeah, absolutely. Whenever you want to talk, I'm I'm available. I feel uh, like you're talking about conscious capitalism without quite naming it that, but I, thinking I about that, I felt that same thing. Yeah, yeah, like thinking about the stakeholders in a business, but not for the reason of like, oh, let's all be altruistic, for the reason of that's what's best for the business and that's what's best for the people who are invested in this business. It's what's best for the people buying the burgers at Cootie Burger. And it's what's best for the people who are working there. Um, and, and when everybody is joined in that goal, a business can rise beyond what it would have otherwise. I think that's the miracle of capitalism really is that it gets us all on the same page um, and, and cap allocation done well is good for the investors. It's good for the management. It's good for the customers and it's good for the environment at the end of the day, if we're, if we're not building projects that end up being for things that no one actually wants, like that's very wasteful. So it, that is really, I think the, the true amazing thing about capitalism is that when it's really done well, we, it puts us all on the same page and, and kind of pulling on the same rope. That's fantastic. I love it. I love it. Jake I'm Taylor. learning so much from you because as you know, accounting is not my forte exactly. And this is such a good way for me to learn in such an interesting way about how the numbers um, support the multiple bottom line. And that is very interesting to me. Yeah, so we, you guys we got this. We, we sort of jumped in on the book because it was about Charlie, we thought and about Warren and, and about investing. And I'll tell you what, if you're interested in starting your own business, if you're thinking yeah. about being an entrepreneur, if you're thinking about anything to do with allocating your own capital, you need to buy this book. It's fantastic. And you should read it. 
I appreciate that. I, I actually, I wrote it more for the small business person or the, maybe the future leadership and not so much even for investors. Um, just because I feel like, you know, I, I love investing and it's, you know, it's something that's my passion, but at the end of the day, like the, the world is a better place when we have people making good decisions within businesses and not so much, am I making the right decision as a deciding to own it, you know, as, you know, buying a stock or not. hundred percent. And, and at the back of the book, Jake has a checklist for all of you uh, business owners and entrepreneurs out there. And it's, it's phenomenal. You put a lot of time and effort into that and like to have you come back and let's talk about the checklist, man. That's I'm so like glad you mentioned that because it is huge fantastic. Thing. Yeah, it really is. If you want a checklist, you just skip the book and read the checklist. <laughs> the checklist the book probably won't checklist. make sense though if you don't read the book. <laughs> you read you the should book. read the book. <laughs> so Jake, thank you very, very much for being with us. Look forward to talking to you again. You guys, and the book is called Rebel Allocator. It's available on Amazon. Um, only Amazon, Jake, or anywhere else? Yeah, Amazon only, um, both digital and print. And um, actually, there'll be an Audible version available pretty soon, which I found this this super talented voice actor who does all the voices in the story. And so it's oh, it really brings it to life. I'm super excited about it. Awesome. Very Rebel cool. Allocator by Jake Taylor. Go grab it. Thank you so much for being here, Jake. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Time to go play. See Thanks, ya. everybody. Bye. Hi, guys. Thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information, including show notes and more episodes, visit us at investedpodcast.com. There's a special offer waiting for podcast listeners to attend my three-day investing workshop absolutely free. So just head to investedpodcast.com. Everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it.